to be here with you tonight. Happy to have the opportunity to speak a little bit and uh, share some thoughts with you. The thoughts I've got tonight, I, uh, I think, have to deal with how we share the gospel. Um, although, as I think about this, it's not just about those few moments when we're actively thinking about how can I share the gospel with this person, but it's really, it's really a lesson about how we talk in general. Um, because it's not like you can compartmentalize the way you speak. Well, this is where I speak lovingly and respectfully, and this is where I'm me. You can't separate those things. And so as much as when I wrote this lesson, it was about how we share the gospel, it's, it's really about how we talk and the, the way that we think, because Jesus said, um, from the thoughts proceed the words we speak, or the words that we speak proceed from our heart. Uh, and so it's not like you can just dress up your tongue and not dress up your heart. They're one and the same. Uh, what prompted these thoughts was um, social media, um, which, good grief, there's so many lessons you can take from social media. But um, on my YouTube channel, um, I had noticed a, an interesting comment. And there's, there's so many. Um, and as many denominations as there are in the world, uh, there are even more types of people and characters of people you'll run across. And, but I, I heard, read a comment that um, represented a thought I'd never heard before in my life. And the comment was on a video, um, The Lord's My Shepherd, I'll Not Want, which is from Psalm 23. And uh, most of us understand that psalm fairly well. David is speaking about um, the kind of life, the peaceful life, the, the good life that one lives with the Lord being their shepherd. Uh, and he starts off the psalm by saying, the Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. And most of us have come to a pretty uniform understanding of what Jesus is saying there. He's saying... Um, I I said Jesus, what David is saying there. Uh, He's saying that with the Lord as his shepherd, he has all of his needs provided. He has no need of anything. He he does not want anything else. He has all that he could possibly want and need and more. Uh, But what this comment proposed was that David was suggesting that he did not want the Lord to be his shepherd. The Lord's my shepherd and I don't want it. And I guess if you are reading a translate, you know, sometimes you put a sentence in Google Translate and it translates to another language and then you translate to another language and then you translate to another language and then when it comes back to English, it's something so bizarre. I suppose you could arrive to that conclusion if that's what you did to that verse and ignored the rest of the psalm. Um, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness, but I don't want it. It's just the most ridiculous thought. But what was more than that was that this, this person did not just suggest that, but he started out his point by using some insulting terminology. And um, I've, it rolls off your back pretty quickly because you, you realize how ridiculous the point this individual was making is. Um, Almost children come to a uniform, unanimous understanding of what the psalm is saying. And so any insult that this person is is trying to throw about somebody who who reads Psalm 23 like the rest of the world reads it, um, you don't let that linger in your mind too much. But uh, as ridiculous as that comment was, the thing 
that I, I did note was that we often find instances of well-meaning individuals speaking that way. Maybe it's not as directly insulting, but the idea of spreading the gospel with a baseball bat is not uncommon. And that is unfortunate. As I was thinking about how to respond to this individual, um, I did respond briefly, and then I, I decided, after consulting my wife, might as well just take this one down. Um, one of the things which I thought about saying was that carrying the gospel in such a way stains the name of Christ. Here's an individual out here claiming to represent Jesus in his gospel and carrying his name. And that might be the first interaction somebody in the world has of Jesus. And you might think, well, if that's what a follower of Jesus looks and sounds like, then I'm not sure I want to be a part of it. And I would have to agree with them. If that's what Jesus looked and sounded like, and that's how the gospel was spread, I would have to call into question the motives and the nature of the gospel. It doesn't sound like a gospel of peace and love and, and redemption and salvation. Um, it sounds like all of the things that the world is, not all of the things that Jesus is. And so I want to share some, some basic ways in, in which we should share the gospel, simple ways. And this is not a, a, a practical lesson in the sense of, you know, you, do, you go stand on this street corner and you go say these things. This is, again, more about the attitudes that we have when sharing the gospel and attitudes that we should have in general as Christians. Uh, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians in our auditorium class, and so the first point that I want to make kind of comes from the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians Way number one in which I think we should share the gospel is simply. We should share the gospel in its simplicity. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that when I'm going to share the gospel, or if I'm going to share the gospel, that I really have to give it a little bit of extra something. You know, you got to put some spicy mustard on that hot dog. You know, there's a pitch coming your way, and you got to hit a grand slam out of this. And you really got to think of a way to reinvent the gospel and craft it in such a way so that it just really hits in there deep in a way that the gospel itself couldn't do. And that's just not true. The gospel is simple. It, It does not have to be overly complex. The gospel is God's message to the entire world. And so it should be able to be heard and understood by the lowest and most simplest of people. And in 1 Corinthians, we've noted that the audience, the Corinthians, have been dealing with this issue of pride, and they've, they've tried to puff themselves up and add value to themselves by the world's standards. But the antidote to this poisonous way of thinking that Paul first brings to their mind is the simplicity of the nature of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of this world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. 
God was well pleased, therefore, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When the uh, Messiah was to come into the world, Jews, Jews were not looking for someone simple. They were not looking for, isn't this Jesus, Joseph's son, the carpenter? You know, we've seen this guy grow up. I mean, he just he builds tables, you know, and builds whatever he does as a carpenter. Isn't this, you know, just a simple so-and-so? They were looking for somebody magnificent. They were looking for somebody like Saul when they appointed him king, someone who was a physical specimen, someone who would come in mighty form. The book of Isaiah 53 says that Jesus had a humble appearance. He was not somebody who we would look at and think, that right there is a king. That's who I want to represent us. That's who I want to represent Christendom. He didn't have a stately form or majesty that we could look at him and, and be impressed just by what we saw. The thing that made Jesus so substantial are the things that he taught. And even when he was on the Sermon of the Mount, after he spoke, the crowds who listened to him were awed by what they heard, not by what they saw. They weren't going around spreading the name of Jesus from city to city saying, come out, come out, look how handsome he is. It was about what he said. He taught as one who had authority. And that was different than anything else they had heard. Jesus was different than what was expected. And he defied the wisdom of the world. He defied the wisdom of the, of the Greeks. He was a king who would die for his subjects. Most of the time in the world, it's the other way around. You give your life for the king. You serve the king. You die honorably in service to the king. But here's a king who comes and shows his authority and his power by laying it all down. He shows his strength in his meekness and in his control. And that's just not something that had been seen before. And it defies earthly logic. And so to the Jew and to the Greek, it's foolishness. The gospel is simple. It's something that the rest of the world cannot believe because of its simplicity. And when he also speaks to the Corinthians, when Paul speaks to the Corinthians, he, he talks about themselves. And continuing on, verse 26 of chapter 1, Consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many were noble. Not many were mighty. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and chose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And so when we're thinking about how should I share the gospel, how should I speak the gospel... It should be in its simplicity, because God spoke to us simply. Paul spoke to the Corinthians simply. Simply, he says, in the beginning of chapter 2, when I came to you, I came not with, with superiority of speech or superiority of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The whole, whole way in which God has reached out to the world is by reasoning. In Isaiah chapter 1, after listing 
listing the offenses of the children of Israel against God, he says, come now, let us reason together. The gospel was presented by Paul to the Corinthians the way he did so that they would think about it. And if it was to to penetrate their hearts, if that seed was to reach deeply into the soil and grow, it wasn't going to be because of the message, the, the manner of the presentation. Sometimes we get won over as humans by what we think we see, you know, by what we see or just by a general feeling of awe, but we don't remember the substance of what was spoken. You know, when you think about movies, movies that have, you know, these great scenes that people remember, you think about Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, you've got Gregory Peck, you know, standing up there, you know, Good-looking guy, objectively. Over the, you know, and he's got a very strong presentation. He's very handsome. He's very crisp. His delivery is impeccable. <laughs> yeah, I make myself laugh. His delivery is so good. I mean, he's just standing up there in the name of God. Do your duty. Like that's just a really cool scene. You might not even remember everything else he said. You just think, wow, that was really cool. You know, a, a few good men where Tom Cruise is standing up at the very end and Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, you gave him the order because he, that's what you told him to do. And like, oh, it's just so cool. But it's just, it's, it's human things, things that we latch on to where it, it gives us this feeling of cool. And at the end of it, you might not think, I don't even know what he said, but I like it. Same thing with our political candidates. Like so many times, we don't even remember the platform. We just think, I don't know what he said, but I like him. He said it well. Whatever he said, he said it. All right. Woohoo. Boy, humans are just so fickle and shallow. And the gospel is not. If you were to go back into that city of Corinth, when Paul was originally shedding the gospel, you would not, if you were just looking to be impressed and entertained, he probably would not have sat there very long. He might have thought, wow, yikes, this is it. I I need something more than this. Moving on, next. That's not who Paul's trying to reach. That's not who God is trying to reach. He's trying to wow people, not by the manner of an earthly presentation, but by the substance of the message. This is a topic which rings deep. It, it hits your heart like a drum. It percusses through your mind and into your spirit and gives you a thought that you just can't escape. Like a problem that you've got to deal with. Talking about the, the manner of sickness that plagues a soul. Something that's been on your mind and in your heart. It gives you an antidote to an eternal problem. It gives you a solution that's more than just just a 10-minute Band-Aid. That's the kind of thing that you listen to. And if we're going to present the message, and if it's going to be successful, it's going to be because of the nature of the gospel itself. Not because of you. Not because of something else, a secret sauce that you sprinkled on top of it. It's going to be because of the nature of the gospel And that should have multiple effects. One, it should empower you to speak the gospel. Simplicity. Just as Paul did. If I were to tell you, you've got to preach the gospel like Paul preached the gospel, you might think, oh man, 
I'm, 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 no, I'm no Paul. Well, here's how Paul preached the gospel in weakness, in fear, in trembling. Can you do that? Good. Then you can talk like Paul. Go talk like Paul in all of your fear and in all of your trembling and all of your weakness so that the power of the gospel will not be of you, but of Christ who put the seed in your heart to begin with. So speak the gospel simply because the word is powerful itself. Paul knew it and now you know it too. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is active. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word itself is active. Now, he uses the illustration here of a sword. But the sword itself is active. The sword doesn't need me. You know, if you watch, I don't know if you've ever gotten into the rabbit hole of watching, uh, watching videos on YouTube or whatever, and you find yourself zoning out for an hour or so, and then at the end of the hour, you're watching a fencing tournament. You're like, how did I end up here? Watching competitive fencing Well, maybe you've ended up there like me, but there's a lot of skill that goes in fencing, especially in those Olympic fencers. They they move, they they dive, they they move quickly, they they parry. That's the only sword fencing term I know. (laughs) They're experts. A sword like that, without that swordsman, is nothing. The sword of the Spirit is something without us. It does not need my expert manipulation. It doesn't need me to come in and really add some power and zing to it. It's like, the sword is active. It doesn't need me to be an expert. It needs me to just, here you go. Here's the sword. Let it do what it needs to do. And present the gospel simply. If we make an effort to just put it out there, it will do what it was designed to do. The word will not return back empty. The second way that we need to share the gospel, and this ties in closely with the third way as well, but I'll I'll put it as category 2A maybe, is respectfully. The gospel needs to be shared respectfully. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is maybe where the lesson started in, in addressing that comment that first was brought up. I think, um, I don't want to go too far down this road. I've always thought political discussion was ugly and pointless. I mean, even as a kid, uh, I acknowledge that there's, there's objective right and wrong, and people have a lot of strong ways in which they feel the country should be run. We'll just leave it at that. But, I, you know, I remember, you know, sitting in my grandparents' room, and they, they would be watching, you know, whatever show it was. No need to talk about that. But I, I remember just thinking, like, what? Like, why are they talking like that? You know, they would, have, they would have guests on their show and totally just talk over them the whole time. And, like, as a five-year-old, I'm like, why, why are you even talking to this person like that? Like, that's, that doesn't seem very respectful. Like, are you, who are you trying to convince? You know, you're not going to convince them. You're just embarrassing them and talking down to them. That's all I'll say about that. But sometimes we do the same thing with the gospel. Um, Politically and 
religiously, in the way that we speak about the gospel and about things in general, one of the easiest cop-outs in trying to convince an audience that you're right is by making a straw man of your opponent's argument. By saying, uh, and I, I remember reading some old debate books that my dad had, um, the, these old debates. It used, to, it used to be a cultural thing where anytime there was a spiritual topic that people disagreed on, they would hold debates. And people would come in droves, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and just fill this place to hear these people talk about the things. And uh, from what I'm told by some people who knew some people who knew people who went and spoke at those debates, most of the time it just further entrenched people. Most of the time when people went there, they didn't go away being convinced of something else. They basically went to support their side. It's you know like watching a Colts game versus the Texans. Like if you're a Colts fan, you're not going there to be like you know I wonder if I'm going to like the Texans at the end of this game. Like you're going there to support your team, and they're going there to support their team. It seems like that's what those debates were. But you know in those debates they would take turns. You know this person would have 20 minutes to talk, and the next person would have 20 minutes to talk. And reading through these books was very challenging because it was just frustrating. You know, even if I would get to take some points away from the lesson, it, it was it's like watching C-SPAN, just, just reading it. It's like watching CNN or MSNBC. Or it's, like, it's just the same thing in print. People making their opponent's argument for them, just belittling other people and striking them down and insulting them. It just, just isn't right. And nobody's going to be convinced that way. You don't convince somebody of something to agree with you by embarrassing them in general. Nobody comes through the other side of a discussion thoroughly embarrassed, belittled, and then saying, you know what, that person was right. I really am the dumbest person in the world. Good thing, yeah, I'm glad we had that talk. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. And Although maybe we don't come across and use insulting words, we do fall into the trap of making our opponents argument for them. And that often disenfranchises people, uh, and it often embarrasses them and insults them and pulls them away from the discussion. As if to say, you know, a straw man argument, a scarecrow argument, is when you say, this is what the other people think. This is what this person thinks, this mysterious person. And you build the argument for them as if it's a scarecrow. And you're going to get into the boxing ring and box with this scarecrow. You know, you don't have to be a good fighter to win a fight against a straw man. I hope. You should win that fight. It's, it's an inanimate object. It's full of straw. It's not, it's not even made of brick. It's just punch it, you know. It's like those little inflatable things that, you know, kids have. You punch it and it goes back and forth. I had a Donald Duck one as a kid. I won every fight against Donald Duck as a kid. And it seems like we do the same thing with our political fights, too. With, with ideas, uh, not even political, but just religious ideas. This is what those people think, and that's why it's ridiculous. One, it's, it's not respectful, and two, it's not effective. One thing I've, I have found among men who I respect, uh, and in people who share the gospel very well, is whenever they find themselves having a disagreement with someone, they take people out of it. So if, if I'm talking with somebody about something they believe... I don't say, well, here's what you think, and here's why you believe this, and why you're wrong to think this, and why it's embarrassing for you to think this. Like, you is totally attached to the person. 
There's nowhere that person can go except down with the ideology that you're trying to bring down. Uh, a better way to do that, what men do, which I, which I said I've, I respect, is they separate people out. Instead, you and I are talking about this thing over here. You know, this, this is an idea. Let's talk about this idea. We separate it into a third party. And then this person is free to talk about that thing objectively. You're, you may be talking about this, but no, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about this idea. That's a great way to be respectful and tactful. And a better way to talk about things in which we disagree. And there are many things in which we disagree, not just us in the world, but even us in here. We don't agree on everything in here. But we need to speak the truth in love. We need to speak with one another respectfully. We need to build one another up for the purpose of edification. And I I told you a little while ago, turn to 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5. Here's something we need to remember. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but divinely powerful for destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our war, our fight, is with ideas, false ideas, which have been shared by the devil. And propagated by the devil. Our fight is with ideas, not people. If we want to win people over, we will do so by fighting the ideas that have ensnared them, by helping them, by dealing with them gently, tactfully, respectfully. In none of those words is their weakness. You can be strong and respectful. And our words can have multiple effects. And I'd share with you one proverb, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, in which Solomon says so wisely that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word will stir up anger. It doesn't matter how right you are, you can say the right thing in a wrong way, and the effect of the words you speak will be Nil. It will be nothing. Consider Priscilla and Aquila as one general example of this. And think about how they spoke with Apollos. We run into them in Acts chapter 18. It says that Apollos was only acquainted with the baptism of John. Now, at this point, when we meet Apollos, we, we've not met him before. We don't know anything that he's done. He's, he's just described. It says that he's an eloquent man, he's a well-educated man, he's mighty in the scriptures, and he's very zealous. Those are all very good things. Now, he's not acquainted with one element of this. He's missing something, and that is the knowledge of baptism of Jesus. He's only been acquainted with the baptism of John. Now, Priscilla and Aquila are wise in their dealings with him. They take him aside and speak with him in such a way to help teach him, to help inform him. Now, you might often think with, with big personalities, it's much more difficult to have that kind of conversation. Sometimes we get so entrenched in our position because of the way that we've fervently spoken about it to where we think, well, I can't change my mind on this. You know, otherwise, people will think, I don't know what I'm talking about. And what we're really absorbed in there is not the words we've been saying, but our own ego. And we can't have any place for our own ego in the sharing of the gospel 
reminds me of many, pla- many places where, where Paul says, if anybody thinks, he's, thinks he knows everything, then he will be shown otherwise. Um, but think about Priscilla and Aquila. If they would have been just very rude and blunt and disrespectful and tactless in the way they spoke with Apollos, then the things that we read after this interaction would never have occurred. It says in verse 27, after they had spoken to him and explained to him the way of God more accurately, he wanted to go across to Achaia. The brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public and demonstrated by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. If Priscilla and Aquila had not spoken to Apollos respectfully, I think 27 and 28 would not exist. I don't think that would have existed. But as it was through their wisdom and through their well-chosen words, we don't know the words they used exactly. We know, we know the, the point of what they said. But whatever they said, they spoke it wisely, considerately, tactfully, respectfully. Whether we're speaking with brothers or sisters in Christ or the world, those need to be attributes of our speech. The final way that we need to speak is lovingly. It walks hand in hand with respect. But this reaches a little bit deeper. As opposed to just uh, speaking to an acquaintance, consider yourself speaking to a child of God who has wandered away from the fold. I'm reminded of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. When he looks at the crowds who are following him, the way that he's looking at these people, they're, they're lost. They're, they're, they're lost because they don't have good leadership. Most of the qualms he had were with the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of the day because they were wolves. One, they didn't feed the flock, and two, what they did do was harmful to them. But he saw these people who were wandering away, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, and it says he felt compassion because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. When we look at people in the world and we're trying to spread the gospel and save the lost of the world, we need to look at the lost of the world as Jesus does. Have compassion on them. Have love for them. These are people who, just like you, are made in the image of God. We need to have love and try to rescue them. You know, you may meet somebody for the first time, and all you know about them is that they don't know the gospel. But God knows everything about that person. God has numbered the hairs on your head and theirs. He has seen every day that you've risen from your sleep and walked through the course of your day and theirs. And he has reached out to you and found you despite your sins and called you by his gospel. Be saved from the world. And he calls them too. So look on the people of the world, look on those who are lost with love and compassion and reach out to them with the same loving hand that Jesus does. A great passage which we should carry with us, the final passage, is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. When Paul talks about the Lord's bondservant, and I gave a lesson on this a little while ago, I can't remember when, maybe it been a year or two ago, but he says the Lord's bondservant must not be Thinking about those verses which sometimes summarize a code of conduct, we really like to zoom in on those. It's like, it's like a rubric almost. You know, we just want to know, God, what do you want me to do? What do I need to be? Boom. 
It's like there's so many other things. There's so much more to the picture, but we want those succinct summaries where we can zone in and be like, all right, this is my checklist. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. But as it is, this is one of those places where it catches your attention. And he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. At the end of the day, that's who we're wrestling with. Just like we had mentioned in the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're fighting ideas, not people. And these ideas have trapped people. They've put them in a snare. And that snare was laid by the devil. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, says that that snare has held people captive by the devil to do the devil's will. You know, it's not easy. I've never done this before, but intellectually I know. It's not easy to free an animal from a trap. They're desperate for life. They want to get out. Um, now sometimes you'll see those YouTube videos where it's like, and animals just so kind and thankful and appreciative. And they, they make best friends with the person who let them out of the trap. If that happens, that's great. I'm telling you, it probably is not the case 99% of the time. I'm not a wildlife expert. I'm really not even an outdoorsy person at all. But even looking at that, I can tell you that's probably not accurate. <laughs> You're not going to have a snow white frolicking with the animals through the woods kind of experience letting an animal out of a trap you will probably get hurt. That animal is desperate. Everything is an enemy at that point because it just wants to live. People have been held captive by the devil, ensnared by the devil. Intellectually, think about this. There will probably be some kicking. There will probably be some scratching. There will probably be some residual damage to you. Which is why Paul says we must not be quarrelsome ourselves. Don't go picking fights. Be patient when you're wronged. Be able to teach. What is the antidote to false teaching? Accurate teaching. What is the antidote to a trap? Getting someone out of the trap. You can't get somebody out of a trap if you don't know how the trap has functioned. If you don't know the machinery, if you don't know how that little bear trap works, you're not going to be able to help somebody get out. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be messy. Boy, reaching out, reaching out to the world is very difficult. And sometimes, um, with my own background, that, that is something that is easy to take for granted. If you were raised in a family... That was uh, a father and a, a wife, you know, a father and a mother, a husband and a wife. And they raised you to know the Lord, to love the Lord. And you had a family very close to what God intended a family to be. That's great. Most of the world is not like that. And it gets messy, it gets difficult. There are a lot of feelings attached in complicated ways. 
It's like digging up a, digging up a lilac bush. I've, I had uh, in our house um, two lilac bushes which were planted right on either side of, of the front door, just about, the, the steps that go up to the front door. And lilacs just grow, boom, just like you trim them down, and then a month later, it's just like somebody took the rubber band off, it just, boom, pops out, there it is. Um, but just as, as quickly as they grow above the surface of the ground, they grow beneath the surface of the ground. And you can't just trim it off the top. It'll grow right back. And as soon as you start digging, you realize those roots touch everything. And to get them out, you're constantly finding them. Emily and I have been digging in the dirt for like the last month, just finding more roots. They just touch everything and go everywhere. Brethren, that's, that's, that's what the world's dealing with. And you might know that yourself. But that's what people are dealing with. And it's hard. And it's emotional. And it's something that requires respect. And it requires understanding. And it requires patience. But that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of people that the Lord came for. God came for those kind of people. He didn't come just for the people who had a really clean life growing up, you know, had a, you know, middle, middle class family and, you know, lived in a nice prosperous town and, you know, they went to school and they graduated from school and got a job and got married and, you know, those things are all great. But Jesus came to save everybody, the complicated and the uncomplicated. And so when we speak to the world, we need to look on those people just as Jesus looked on them with all of their complexity, with love and compassion, and point them to the shepherd. Three ways, there are many ways we could talk about how we need to carry the word of God in our hearts, but the three ways I've said tonight are simply, respectfully, and lovingly. You don't have to have a college degree to have any of those things. You just have to have a heart that wants to be like Christ. That's my invitation to you tonight. Is your heart like Christ's? In the way that you share the gospel, in the way that you live your life, in the way that you deal with your family, in the way that you deal with your friends, your coworkers, the way that you represent Christ as his child here on earth and carry the name of Jesus on you. When people look at you and they think, well, he's a Christian, he told me he is, what do they see? Are you carrying the Christ the way that you should? And if you're not carrying Christ, I talked about all of those difficult circumstances and complexities of life. And I'm not going to suggest that if you embrace Christ, then all of those things magically go away. No, I can't say that. But I will say that Jesus is the ultimate answer. He is the ultimate answer because he's the one thing that lasts from this life into the next. All of our interactions with family members, the world, the amount of money we have, the physical circumstances we live in, and the difficult, whatever that may be, those things are all temporary. But Jesus is the one thing which will carry you from this challenging world through eternity, from the kingdom of the devil the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light of his beloved son.
if you're not a Christian, I invite you to become one tonight. And if you are a Christian and you're struggling, if there's any way that we can help tonight, please make your needs known as we stand and sing our invitation song. Christians present this evening who need to take the Lord's Supper? Don't see any hands. Oh, Jim. The last Monday of May of every year, the world observes the Memorial Day. That started in 1868 after the Civil War. And it's celebrated one time a year. 2,000 years ago, there was a sacrifice made for Christians by Jesus. He was crucified on the cross. And that gives an opportunity to end up in heaven. That sacrifice is done the first day of every week. Because that's how we're instructed to observe the Lord's table. So... One time a year, or 52 times a year, the Christians get to observe that sacrifice that was made with the two emblems that represent the body and the emblem that represents the blood. So at this time, I'll return thanks for the bread that represents his body. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now as we're about to partake of the emblem that represents your son's body that died on the cross for our sins that day on Calvary. May we do it with a heart that's pleasing to you, Heavenly Father, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 